Good morning. Good morning. We're back for another Bible study about the end times. And today, what I thought we should do, we didn't do this last week. I want to encourage the audience to participate a little bit. And so I'm going to read some verses and y'all are going to read some verses. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay. Can so can I get a volunteer for Genesis 15 verses 2 through 6? Okay. So Wendy's going to do Genesis 15, 2 through 6. And I'm going to need somebody else loudly, by the way, to do Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And Genesis 22, the reference is right there if you forget. So. I can do that. Okay, so Christy's going to do 22, 15 through 18, and Wendy's going to do Genesis 15, 2 through 6. Go right ahead. Okay. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall be thy seed. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Thank you, Wendy. So Genesis 15, if you look up here on the slides, it's about redeemed Israel. So Israel at this point hasn't even been born, but God is making his promise to Abraham and saying that it depends on him. It's depending on God, that is. And all Abraham has to do is believe. And that's what he does. And in verse 6, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And as I explained last week, if you read the rest of the passage, Abraham divides up these sacrifices in a bloody ritual. Abraham has a deep sleep that comes on him. God passes through the pieces of these sacrifices. Abraham does not. And this was a custom in ancient times whenever you're making a covenant with somebody that you would divide up these offerings and each would take turns walking through the path between them. And this was saying that you were bound to keep your end of the bargain or there would be a severe consequence. But Abraham doesn't walk through because this covenant is an unconditional one not based on Abraham's obedience or disobedience but it's based on God's grace through faith. And that's why Paul uses this verse, Genesis 15, 6, in the book of Romans. And he uses it again in the book of Galatians to illustrate God's grace and how we're saved not by works, but by faith in Jesus. In this case, the content of Abraham's faith wasn't just faith in the coming Messiah. No doubt that was included, but it also included just the formation of the nation at all. So that's Genesis 15. Now, Christy, can you read Genesis 22? Yes. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Thank you. So this is a different sort of thing here. So... Abraham's faith, of course, is spotlighted again, but here it's more active rather than Genesis 15. It was passive there. In Genesis 15, Abraham is sleeping. God says, I'm making this covenant with you. It's unconditional. This is a, a sure deal because I'm going to do it even if you don't deserve it. Even if your descendants don't deserve it, I'm going to keep this covenant because you believe. Here, it's not just faith 
and a promise, it is a test of faith and he overcomes the challenge. He passes the test. He offers up his son. He doesn't withhold him. Of course, I'm sure those who are listening to this and everybody in this room knows the story that Isaac was not sacrificed. But here, when it's talking about these covenant blessings, it talks in terms of multiplying. Uh, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. So military conquest. And verse 18, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Hebrew, this is more apparent than it is in English, but this is more than just saying that through Abraham will come the Messiah and the Messiah will bless everybody. This is talking about the nation itself is going to have prominence in the future. Now, this was not completely fulfilled in the history of Israel. They never possessed all the land that was promised to them by God, and they never had prominence over the entire world. Okay, Their section of the world, yes, David, we talked about him on Friday night, very powerful, conquering different nations, bringing those fools to God's temple, but they never ruled the world. But this is a promise that God has made. So we see two different things symbolized um, or foreshadowed in this Abrahamic covenant. The first thing is Israel is redeemed and eternally secure. That points to the security of the body of Christ. And then we have Israel reigning. And in the millennium, they're going to be given the rewards of their obedience. Uh, of course, God's worked it out to where uh, he's only going to bless that generation that deserves it in that way. So um, God did not bring in the kingdom 2,000 years ago to the nation of Israel. They did not have that faith of Abraham. But one day there will come a generation that has the faith of Abraham, not just faith in God for eternal life, faith in Jesus for eternal life, but also an overcoming faith. There's going to be tribulation martyrs. There's going to be the 144,000 witnesses of the Jewish tribes who are going all throughout the world. Uh, you know, they're braving all of those challenges, braving all of those obstacles. And because of that, when the kingdom comes, they just won't be in it, but they'll be reigning in it. Okay, so this is a picture of the church. And we talked about how there are two phases of the kingdom. So in the millennium, what are we as believers going to do? Okay, we're going to be ruling and reigning, but it's going to be different on a different level, you could say, than Israel and the Gentile nations. Now, exactly how this works out, Prophecy scholars have been confused for a long time by this. Like, how, what is it going to be? Is there going to be like a mansion over here? You got glorified saints living there, and then you got these houses over here, and natural body saints are living there. How is that going to work? Uh, I think the best comparison that I can offer y'all, and I don't know the answer clearly, but uh, we have angels right now who are administering God's will over nations. Okay, They just can't be seen. Now, let's imagine that becomes visible, right? So people in the millennium can see glorified saints. They can see us because we're taken in the rapture. We're going to be there in glorified bodies. They can see us, and we will have commands given to us by Christ, by God, and those commands will filter down, I believe. So there's going to be a hierarchy of reigning and ruling. So if you're a Gentile, okay, in a natural body, you're going to be under the authority of Israel that's reigning in the restored land, all of that which is promised to Abraham is going to be given to them. So the borders are going to extend. Uh, you will have a, a temple rebuilt. And you're going to have Jesus on the throne there in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. But he's going to have authority delegated to people. We know that he's going to delegate authority to the glorified disciples. So the disciples, since they were Jews and their glorified bodies, they will have special authority over the nation of Israel. But even among the natural body people... There will be people who have authority to reign over other people. So this is very interesting. Uh, we don't really know all of what's going to take place whenever the millennium happens. But what I'm trying to illustrate is the millennium is unique 
and it's problematic for a lot of people. Because in the millennium, you don't just have glorified people. If it was just glorified people and it's all summed up and done, no one would have a problem with it. Uh, they would wonder why a thousand years, you know. Everybody's in glorified bodies and there's no sin. So it's very interesting how people will will dismiss the, the millennium. And they do it because it's just too much uh, strainness about it. We, we have the Gentiles in the natural bodies, the Jews in the natural bodies, and then we have Christians ruling over them, and that seems strange. Why would God do it that way? Why doesn't he just give all the believers their glorified bodies and skip straight to the new heaven and the new earth? Um, I think the answer to that is as follows. Okay, God's keeping his promises to Abraham. He hasn't done that yet. So... Right now, Israel does not have all the land that they were promised, never have had all the land that they were promised, never have reigned over all the nations like was promised. God's got to keep his promises. And it's just as God kept his promises or will keep his promises to Israel to reign over the nations, he will keep his promises to overcoming believers. So again, th- this is where we, we can talk about the judgment seat of Christ. When the rapture happens, I'm going straight up to be with the Lord. We all are. And we're going to stand before the Lord. And there will be a division made of some sort. And we, again, we don't know all the details, but we know that believers who are faithful, they will have their works tried and tested. And in God's eyes, it will be precious, like precious metal, gold, silver, jewels. And then we have other people whose works are tested. They're also believers. They are saved. Okay, They have the same foundation that we have, Jesus Christ, salvation, justification. But they built upon that foundation hay, wood, and stubble. And this is all described in 1 Corinthians 3. All that's burned up if that's what they built up. Now, is it going to be so cut and dry as that? You can have a person over here who's all hay, wood, and stubble, and a person over here who's all gold, silver, and precious jewels. I doubt it. Okay, I think it's just trying to communicate to us there are different types of materials involved. But God's going to judge that, and the people who are deemed worthy of it will be counted overcomers in the practical sense because not only did they receive the Holy Spirit and were overcomers, in the uh, salvation sense, but they were also overcomers in their life. I don't want to just stand before Jesus and, and, and be just saved. I know that that's enough for me. Like if I was holding open doors for people in heaven, that's, you know, as long as I'm there, you know, I don't care. But God wants us to progress in sanctification. He doesn't want us just to stay saved. He wants us to be saved and holy in our living. And if you're not holy in your living, that's not going to reflect on your salvation, okay? So if you don't live holy as a Christian, that doesn't mean that you're disqualified from salvation, as many people teach. It just means when you stand before the Lord one day, you won't have anything to show for your life. It's like what David Jeremiah said on the radio this week. He said it's going to be the difference between well done, good and faithful servant and come on in. Just yeah, come on in. absolutely. Well, buddy, I love you, son. And this is where you belong. There's that and there's, buddy, you serve me well. You serve me well. You were an obedient child. You respected your heavenly father and people came to know about me through you. And I think that that's what we all want. And there, there's truth in, and, and, I, and I say this and I'm going to clarify it, there's truth in the reform position and even the Arminian position which says that works matter. They do matter. They just don't matter when it comes to being saved. Okay, you see what I'm saying? You know, being saved is a free gift. Right, It's what we just saw in Genesis 15. If you believe and you are accounted righteous in the eyes of God, God's the one who went through the fire for us in the form of, of Jesus Christ, took on flesh and blood and paid for that and, and suffered judgment in our, in our behalf. 
Um, so Jesus did all that. Salvation's free by grace through faith. But does that mean that works have nothing to do with our Christian walk? What does it say in Ephesians 2.10? For you are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That he created beforehand. Absolutely, which he created, which he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. So God intended for us, once we were saved, to live in a holy manner because he's holy. I mean, we're his children were to reflect their heavenly father. And he is going to, because he's fair, because he's just, he is going to know, he knows now that some of his children are rebelling against him and not doing that. And others are being faithful. And he is going to take that into account. And there's going to be great rewards. And so Genesis 22 pictures that in Abraham's seed and Abraham's people, Israel. So this is a confusing thing that's hard to piece together, but I do believe that the key is understanding that Israel is a type of the church. Israel is not the church. Okay, It is distinct, but Israel was always meant to point to the church. How many stories can we think of growing up as kids hearing and, and seeing how they correlate to the gospel going through the Red Sea? Okay, The one way provided is Jesus. Okay, The blood being put on the doorpost the blood of Jesus. Okay. The law being given, God's got expectations for his people. They're to be priests and holy. And we've seen how that's applied to us, how we are a, a royal priesthood. Christians are, and we are to be holy as he is holy. So we've seen how there's been so much correlation here. Uh, you know, growing up, we, we've made those connections or had people illustrate those. And so I think that one of the connections that people just fail to realize is the eternal security one. <laughs> uh, if Israel ceases to exist altogether, if God casts off his people completely, then what does that say about the church? If Israel's pointing to the church, a type of the church, then what would that imply? It would imply that if he casts off Israel, he can, and he probably will cast off the church. But because he sticks with his people and he's faithful to them, even though they're not faithful to him, it shows that he's faithful to his church, even if the church isn't faithful to him. And so... Go to 2 Timothy 2.13 and read that verse, one of my favorites. If we believe not, if we are faithless, yet he reign, remaineth faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so once he makes a promise, he can't break it. Once he made that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, he would never go back on it. Now, there are many times where if we were judging Israel according to the law, God would have every right to abandon them. I mean, at Kadesh Barnea, when they refused to go into the land, God could have said, you're not my people, I cut you off. And it seemed like he was about to do that until Moses acted as an intercessor and he prayed on behalf of Israel. And that is a type of Christ. If it wasn't Christ shielding me, if Christ wasn't covering my sin, standing between me and the father, the father would cast me off. Mm -hmm. But it's the blood of Jesus that covers me. You know, it's the righteousness of Christ that I'm clothed in. And so, again, I'm really big on Israel because as I shared with y'all last week, Israel is a picture of me. I regard Israel that way. Every time I'm reading about the, the failures of the people, every time it says, well, God was patient with them. You know, God looked upon them and he knew that they were flesh passing away like the grass in the field. And, and, and I read that and I'm thinking, that's me. That's just like me. And so God has been illustrating to the world his grace to, to secure people eternally. He's been illustrating that in Israel, and he's also been illustrating the fact that he will reward people who are obedient. Whenever Israel was obedient, whenever they repented and they turned to God, 
Think of the stories of victory that we've heard as kids growing up or as adults. Okay, Th Think about the story of, of Samson, the story of David, the story of Joshua. Like God rewarded them with great victory. Uh, we, we think about David again. We're talking about this on Friday, how David went and he conquered these nations and he brought the spoils back. And, and uh, we read about the, the reign of Solomon, the golden age of Israel. When Israel was honoring God where God wanted them to be, they were blessed abundantly. Whenever they disobeyed God, did he cast them off? No, but they were judged by him in a disciplinary manner. They were carried off into exile. Did he abandon them while they were in exile? Of course not. He brought them back. Okay, the period of the judges, lots of ups and downs. So Israel, again, is a picture of us. Now, the nature of the millennium is something I want to talk about today. And this is probably all we'll have uh, time to talk about today. But I want to look at these passages. Uh, somebody get to Ezekiel 36, 10 through 11. Okay. Uh, Isabel, do you want to read something too? Okay. How about you read Zechariah 8, 22 through 23. And Matt's going to get Ezekiel for us. Go ahead and read that whenever you're ready, Matt. Yes, sir. It says this, I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. Very good. So Israel is going to be restored. And the temple is going to be rebuilt. If you were to read uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48... It gives lots of details about that, and it's interesting how people will interpret it. They try to take all the details and, and try to find some symbolic meaning for it, and then you'll notice they skip over a lot of details mm -hmm. because they can't find any symbolic meaning for them because they're not symbolic. <laughs> the details are literally to be fulfilled one day. Um, so Zechariah 8, read that for us, Isabel. Out loud. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in, in Jerusalem and the Good, good. Notice that, and that's powerful to me. You're gonna take hold of the robe of a Jew, ten men from these nations, and say, We have heard that the Lord is with you. We're going where you're going. All right, we want us we, we want to learn from you. Tell us about God. So Israel's finally going to fulfill their true calling. Their true calling was to be a light to the nations. And in the millennium, they're going to be a light to the nations. Everybody, if you want to know the answer to the question, who is God? A Jew is going to be able to tell you. If you want to know where does God dwell? Where is his throne? It's going to be in Israel. And so... That's going to happen in the millennium. And so the exaltation of earthly Israel is going to take place in the millennium. But there's another thing that I think a lot of dispensationalists ha have not talked about. They haven't dealt with this as much. Um, and if I was to share this with some of them, they might think that uh, I sound a little bit um, like a supersessionist when I say these things, but I'm not. And I'll explain what I mean. But in uh, Galatians 4.26, I'm going to read this for you. Uh Paul writing here says, but Jerusalem, which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Israel, which is above or Jerusalem, which is above, sorry, is free, which is the mother of us all. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, which is going to make its debut at the end of the millennium. And he, at the very end of his letter, he talks about the Israel of God. 
He says in chapter 6, verse 16, And as many walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And a lot of people think that the Israel God is talking about saved Jews. And that's a perfectly acceptable interpretation. It could refer to the, the Israelite community in Paul's day that had believed in Jesus. Um, other people would say the Israel of God refers to the church. And many people have construed it to where if you say Israel of God refers to the church, then you're not a dispensationalist. Okay, So you're, you're downplaying God's plan for Israel. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think that if one was to look at this verse and say Israel of God is a reference to the church, all it would be saying is, you know how you have an earthly Jerusalem and you have a heavenly Jerusalem? Well, you have an earthly Israel and you have a heavenly Israel. I don't think that that's a stretch. Now, whether or not Israel of God here refers to the church, it's not made 100% clear. It's not certain. However, we do know that the earthly Jerusalem pertains to Israel on earth, and the heavenly Jerusalem pertains to the body of Christ, the bride. And that's why in Revelation 21, it talks about the new heaven, the new earth. In verse number one, it says, I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, again, the word people in verse 3 is in the Greek text, plural. So it would be peoples. Now again, the word people itself is plural, but peoples carries the meaning, I think, a little bit more clear. But they will be his peoples. So many commentators have noted that there is a change in this. I read one commentator uh, from the 1800s, his name's uh, Henry Alford, and he was a premillennialist. So he believed that God had a special plan for earthly Israel during that thousand years. But when he comments on this text, he says, it's interesting to see this change that before Israel's God's people, in terms of nations, right? In terms of like a chosen ethnicity, it's Israel, 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 Israel. And they're his people. And everybody else is just called the nations, right? Uh, or Hebrew goyim, okay? The people who are out there, the Gentiles. But here, we don't just have Israel being called the people. We have the peoples, now this this the peoples, like different groups. Uh, yes. Groups of people. So I do believe this refers to ethnic groups. Okay. Yeah. So these are people identified according to some current ethnicity. Exactly how that's divided up in the new heaven new earth, I do not know. Okay. But uh, the idea that God's going to preserve some national distinction, okay, among all the different peoples, I do think that's the case. Southerners uh, are going to be their own special. They may be, and maybe the Southerners may be <laughs> distinct enough to be their own people. But the point is, Israel is not elevated as God's people above everybody else that's not his people. Okay, Everybody's all on the same level here. And to me, this sounds very similar to Paul saying, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So in Galatians, he talks about the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all. Not just the mother of the Jews, but of the Greeks as well. The people who are saved that are in the body of Christ. So I'm of the opinion that in the millennium, you're going to see a huge difference between ethnic Israel 
and, and the Gentiles. And I think that Israel ethnically will have prominence over all the Gentiles. I think that's the millennium. That's why a lot of people don't like it because it bothers them. Why should Israel be so special? But when you understand that Israel is a type of the church, to me, it all makes sense. God is picturing something here. But when is that picture fully revealed? When is it fully fulfilled? The new heaven and the new earth. That's when it all comes together. So will the people of Israel be special during that time? Of course. They'll be special because they're one of the peoples. And all the peoples are special because they're part of the body of Christ. But I don't think that in the new heaven and the new earth, that the new Jerusalem will be distinctly the home of Jews or Israelites. And everybody else just kind of goes up there and it has access to it, right? I think that the new Jerusalem is the property, of course, of God given to the church. And in the church, does a Jew have a more prominent position than a Gentile? No. No. So I think that when we get to the new heaven, new earth, there still will be a distinction. Like, I'm not going to be a Jew, okay? I'm going to be... However God decides to distinguish me, whether he sees me as, okay, he, he's an American <laughs> or I'm a Southerner, whatever, you know, my people classification is, whatever. Okay. But that's me. Southern by the grace of God. Southern by the grace of God. If that's what he wants, if he says, okay, it's the Southern people group over here, whatever. Okay. But the Israelites will maintain their ethnic distinction. Okay. And they will be blessed, not because they're Jews, but because they're redeemed. And I will be blessed, not because I'm a Southerner, because I'm an American, but because I'm part of the redeemed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that is the nature of the millennium and the nature of the tribulation. Uh, we will get into that next week because we have, as you can see, a number of verses to look at. And I feel like if we jumped in that, it would just be too much too soon. So we're going to talk about the tribulation next week and how we're not going to be in it. Amen. Amen to that. So God bless. Bye -bye. Thank you so much for listening. Bye -bye.